Today we're with Garrett Smallwood, the CEO of WAG. Garrett's somebody that we've known now for five years. He uh, grew up in San Mateo and went to University of Arizona and then went over to Red Beacon where he was a product manager. Uh, and then he was over at Pillow uh, and then started a company that we uh, funded at NFX um, years ago. And um, it was called Finrise, eventually backed by Mayfield. It was uh, in the consumer space around veterinary loans and, and whatnot for consumers. And then he became an EIR at NFX. And, uh, and after the acquisition of Finrise by, by WAG, ended up um, sort of climbing the ranks there and eventually uh, became the CEO of the company. And today we're going to hear from Garrett uh, about uh, profitable and efficient management of companies and thoughtfully operating in this new era of COVID and after COVID and on switching mental models. Uh, Garrett's been through it all. He's gotten all the badges of the, uh, of the founder and the entrepreneur and uh, has, has uh, great insights uh, that we've shared over the years. And we're very pleased to have you on the podcast today, Garrett. Thanks, James. Good to connect. Yeah, good to see you, man. So let's talk about your path with, with FinRise and then to WAG and what happened there. And, and now you're the CEO. How'd that all come down? Okay, so I started FinRise, I think, in 2016. And I joined WAG via the acquisition of FinRise. And I, I joined WAG basically to launch the Northern California office. For those who don't know, WAG was a LA-based and founded business. One of the few. Uh, so WAG is the on-demand dog walking company. Most notorious for it. And I've uh, been at WAG... Most recently, as the head of product and partnerships, and then took over as CEO in November of nineteen. Got it. And how did that all take place? Why Why did they choose you? There was a lot of people. How many people were there at SP? Yeah, so WAG had around five hundred employees when I first took over. And just for context, say we're about a little less than a hundred. Pretty huge transformation. I would say, look, there's a lot of news around WAG. It's it's been an amazing ride, an amazing adventure. I think it was just a different time for the company. I think. If you look at WAG, the history has been fundamentally like growth at all costs, huge emphasis on kind of quick market expansion, geographic footprint. Uh, I think when you take a step back, there's probably just a new way to build WAG and one that I firmly believe in, which is really focused on operational excellence, strategic advantages through services and density, and uh, being really smart about kind of the way you build the company going forward. Got it. And they had a lot of different leaders at that company and uh, with 500 employees. And they realized that there was a new time coming for WAG. This was pre-COVID even. And COVID increases the, the challenges, that the headwinds that a company like WAG faces. But what do you think it was about your style, about how you think, about your mental models, which let the board know that you were the person to become the CEO, even though they had made a brought you in as an acquisition? What I've seen, Garrett, over the years is there's a certain way you think about operating businesses. And I think this is what's going to be interesting to the founders who are listening to this podcast. Yeah, I would just say I'm really impatient. Uh, you know, I, I actually I dropped out of college. I I didn't I just didn't think it was valuable. I I, I it's kind of rude, but I leave meetings early. Like I'm just a really impatient person. And I think when you build a startup, I really I think Wag is still a startup. You have to be impatient. You have to move really really quickly. You need to make the right decisions fast. And I think that that's uh, a really it's a huge skill when you're building a company is your ability to kind of rapidly make good decisions. And I'm not saying I always get it right. But I can tell you that I, I really don't like being slow. I don't like sitting in place. 
Got it. So one thing for sure is the speed that they notice. What else? It's, I think just a focus on efficiency. Um, so I, you know, from top to bottom, you know, I, I I've stared our P and L at the at end of every month. I go through the Excel spreadsheet with the team for every single department. I I, I, I listen to customer service calls. I take customer service calls. You know, I, I help write marketing copy. I think just being part of all the different parts of the business is really important. And I also, you know, I think having a good rapport with the team. You know, we have like a pretty tight knit team now. It's a great culture. I mean, could talk to the employees. I'm probably biased. But I mean, there's a really tight knit group of people. And I think that, you know, I, I, part of my motive is really keeping a really tight ship, making sure that everyone is there that understands why they're there and why they should be there and what they need to do to keep that ship going. And so it's something I really pride myself on. So focus on culture, speed. In order to have speed, what do you need to make fast decisions or good decisions? Obviously, data. I think first thing is data. I, I think the second thing is really foresight, right? I think you have to have an understanding of where you want to be. And I think a lot of people go too extreme on one or the other. They go, okay, in five years, we're going to be X. But I think you forget what you need to accomplish this year. Again, not that we always get it right, but I think you need to have a pretty good blend of what do I have to do today that's going to get me to a spot I need to be in two years. Got it. So a balance between overly visionary and overly reactive. Correct. Right. And then you're talking about building rapport with your team. So that sounds to me like Human relationships, culture, culture, yep. right? Actually getting in the weeds with the, with the product itself, looking at whether those numbers are, are real and not, not maybe not deceiving yourself, maybe being honest. I mean, it's pretty easy for founders and CEOs and entrepreneurs to, to get into this. I think especially pre-COVID, this kind of loop of I'm amazing. I've raised all this money. Life is great. Nothing can go wrong. Um, I think you have to be really honest with yourself of each each scenario, what's actually happening in your company, what's actually happening in your business, and, and have people around you that are holding you just as accountable. Got it. So it sounds to me like this is the fundamentals. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're preaching is is fundamentals of being being an honest person, being a communicative person, being a data-driven decision maker. Yeah. What are some of those metrics that you think that people should be looking at? I really like um, Alfred Lin's approach at Sequoia of a metric that only matters to your business. So at WAG, we have two metrics that really are specific to us. One is our average time to fill a request. Like we're an on-demand marketplace. It's, it's an expected you know, consumer reaction is how quickly we're, we're filling that request. And the second one is actually specific to net, like the network, which is uh, services within a given neighborhood or density. And we know that as those increase, that ratio increases, we, we see more kind of organic installs and the business grows faster. Uh, so those are, those are like WAG specific. Right. And, and each company is going to have their own metrics, but figuring out what metrics matter to your business is a core thing that founders need to do to give you a unique perspective on how to win in your market. Is that what you're saying? I think that's right. Although to your point earlier, I think it is back to basics, back to fundamentals. Like retention is always going to be important, right? Like frequency, CAC, LTV, all those things are always going to be important. Like if you don't know your NPS, I think you have a bigger problem. So I think, I think there are just fundamental metrics that we can't get away from that are like more important than ever. So, so you had 500 people at WAG. The board says, okay, Garrett, we've watched you now for a year, year and a half working inside our organization. We see that you have the cultural data-driven speed, the things that this company really needs to go back to fundamentals, to be thoughtful about the operations, to drive toward profitability, to be efficient. We want you to be the CEO. And you said, okay, fine. And then you, you need to do surgery to save the patient. Can you tell us a little bit about the surgery that was required? Yeah, so if you, if you just take a step back, I, I actually built the plan to say that was the right path forward. So I think, you know, I, I came to the board and I said, look, I think fundamentally it's a great business. Did they ask you to do that, Garrett, or did you do that on your own and just bring it? I did that proactively. Yeah, I think that's an important point to, to, to point out to founders. 
is that you sitting inside of this 500 person company, you were an important person, but you weren't running the company. You proactively created your own plan for what would save this company. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's just a different path, but I, I had a strong opinion that there was another path for the company that probably was the right path. And I was willing to stake my, like, I obviously am willing to stake my kind of my current career on it. But I think fundamentally, it's the belief that I do believe this is a great company. And there's a lot of reasons why it's a great company. We have really high average frequency for our customers. Retention is strong. We have a strong consumer brand. But I do think that it really required you to question every single assumption. So we did things that, I mean, to be clear, I've never done before, right? So we bought out our largest investor. We parted ways amicably. We decided it wasn't the best path forward for kind of the current business. We uh, fundamentally then restructured the board. Uh, So we have three amazing firms on our board who are deeply committed to the company. Uh, Nico from General Catalyst, Roger Lee from Battery, and Scott Stanford from Acme, previously Sherpa. So still a deeply committed board. We resized the whole company, right? Like I said, we went from 500 to less than 100 in less than 90 days. And it's an unbelievably humbling experience. Like these are great people. We moved the headquarters from LA to the Bay Area. So we actually shut down our LA office. And it's 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 painful, right? These are great people. They're, they've been deeply committed to the company. But we have a new we had a new path, and we had and we had to make some difficult decisions. Uh, we resized the whole leadership team. So new head of finance, new head of marketing, uh, new operations leader, new head of product. Literally overnight, a whole new team. And uh, and we fundamentally re- rethought and rebuilt our whole strategy. We have a whole new kind of you know way of operating the business. And I, I would just do, to be totally clear, like our business is still great. Like we're as big, if not bigger than we were. We're still helping tens of thousands of pet parents and we're still helping, you know, drive this service across the country. So this is radical surgery. I mean, for founders who are going through sort of a laying off of 10% or reducing their, their uh, salaries by 25%, like you went through everything. You mo- removed people from the cap table. That never happens. You changed your board. You you changed the headquarters location. You uh, had to let go, you know, 80% of the employees. Uh, you've you've changed the numbers and the metrics and the dashboards and everything about how the business is perceived and run and communicated internally. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So I just, I say that because, right, you're getting all the badges from the founders and, and that, that sort of extreme surgery, I think is, uh, it sounds very daunting. I know it was daunting. I know it was difficult, but I also think it's a great example for founders to realize how far you can go. And that uh, probably what you're going through isn't as radical as what Garrett's gone through. I got some great advice early on is, you know, look, I don't think you can make extreme enough decisions. Because I, I think you'll, you'll think they're extreme and you'll look back and be like, that was the right decision. I mean, to be clear, it's a first time for a lot of us, right? Like a lot of founders are still first time founders. A lot of them are, are first time kind of in a big company. A big company could be 50, 100, 150 people, 500 people. And when you think about removing 50 people, you're like, that's a lot of people. But like, what's 100? Like, what's 200? Like when you're going through what the world is going through. And I think there's a fundamental shift happening of we're going back to the fundamentals. People are going to actually look at retention and profit, and contribution margin, and marketing expense. What's in marketing expenses? And you show me your cohort tables. Like there's going to be a whole like reckoning of how we evaluate these businesses. I don't think you can make extreme enough decisions. I think I think it's the board's responsibility to tell you if they're too extreme. And what sort of mental shifts can you encourage people to make? I mean, isn't that the fundamental problem? Is that we all have been operating with one mental model, like grow at all costs, or you know, defeat my competitor, or whatever whatever the mental model was. What's that shift that, that you were able to make more easily apparently than others? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was more easily. I would say it took some time. Uh, it took some. It was some heavy, heavy weekends, uh, and it's, it's very uncomfortable, right? It's it's an extremely uncomfortable thing to have to question even your own assumptions because you think like, oh, we're crushing it, right? Like that's what everyone tells you. We're crushing it. This is great. This is awesome. And suddenly, overnight, you're no longer thinking you're crushing it, and you have to you need to figure out why. And fundamentally, I think that. 
you know, as, as the founders, as the CEOs, we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure we're maximizing shareholder value. Like, that's the simplest way to put it. And shareholder value are your employees, they're your customers, they're yourself, there's your board. And what's the best way to maximize shareholder value? Well, if you know you're not gonna be able to raise much money anymore, which I think a lot of companies aren't, or they're not gonna be able to get great terms, then it's to preserve cash and focus on maintaining and acquiring customers. That's like the only two things that matter. Right. Like there was a great um, Harvard question and they, they ask every incoming class that have MBAs, why do businesses fail? And they go through they go through almost everyone in the room and no one says because they don't sell they don't sell products. Right. That's the reason. Like the reason business fails is because they don't have enough people buying the products. And so I think that with this new fundamental shift, like the founders have to realize that it's not going to be as easy to go raise 50 at 250. Right. Like I, I have I had friends literally being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go raise 50 at 250 next week. I'm like, how? That's like crazy to me. Um, and it was like kind of easy. And I think that that 50 at 250 is now going to have a whole different, you know, set of ex- expectations with it and a lot more competition. Right. I heard somebody said the other day that the best form of financing is revenue. Yes. Uh, which again, goes back to the fundamental, the fundamentals. I think Buffett and, and I just think like that whole Berkshire model will come back in like full swing. People are going to love these profitable network effect businesses that turn off cash and have great leaders. And that's going to be back in full swing. I think you're going to see more tweets on Buffett than we have in the last five years. (laughs) Right. I mean, we've got a generation that just has never seen a downturn, right? It's been 12 years since things have just been going up. And so you could, you could be, you could be 34 and never haven't seen a downturn. I mean, and it's, it's, it's sectors too, right? Like for so long, if you look at these portfolios, real estate has been this driver of returns and it's because real estate has just been this continue year over year, beautiful growth that led by kind of the financing of all these companies. Um, and now you just, it's, we're in for reckoning. And I think you're just going to see whole sectors. I remember when I started FinRise, when we started FinRise, no one would invest in travel. No, that was like travel was the no-no. You weren't supposed to start a travel company. Within 24 months, everyone was starting a travel company, right? Everyone's traveling. Well, I get, I bet you for the next two years, travel is going to be dry. When you went through these layoffs before COVID, you learned a lot about those experiences. It's not easy to lay people off. These are, these are good people, hardworking people. They know what they're doing. What then happens later? How did you, first of all, build your culture back up uh, so that, you know, right now people have the excuse of COVID. Back then you didn't. How do you build the culture back up to a point where it's, it is now, where it's a good culture again? What are some of the tips and tricks? Yeah. So first things first, as a founder um, or CEO, whatever you are, I think the most important thing is to cut deep and fast. So like whatever, some if, first off, you can't trust your team to decide who to cut. I think that's like incredibly irresponsible. Like these people are managing usually their team and they're going to have strong emotional connections with the people on their team. And they're going to fight really hard to keep them. It's going to be really tough mentally for people to get rid of people. And so as the founder, CEO, whoever you need to be in the driver's seat, say, let's look at every single, let's look at every single person. And I'm sure they're all great. I have no doubt that they're they're here. They're going to be great. If they're not great, then we have a bigger problem. Um, And I think you need to go really deep and really fast on who you cut and why. And the second thing you need to do with your leadership team, which is the most important exercise, is say, okay, now that we're cutting all this, what's going away? Like, what are we actually sacrificing in the business? Okay, got it. Okay, so we don't have a CRM marketing team anymore. That's That could be a problem. Is there some that could take that on? Do we bring on agency? What do we do? Like, there's all these roles, right, that you need to now somehow put somewhere, and you need to figure out, are they still important? If they're still important, let's keep doing them. If they're not, what do we move it to? The third thing is, obviously, once you do the riff, and I strongly recommend that you do it. Like I flew to LA and shut down the office with with my with my you know my now I call my co-founder Mozzie. Um, and I threw up on the plane. Like it's a nerve-wracking thing. Like I knew I was going to show up in LA. I was going to have to lay off hundreds of people. It was a terrible, terrible thing. It's gut wrenching, but you better do it. Like it's your decision. 
Um, and I think, so then the third thing is to make sure that you are now setting the tone of why we're going to succeed going forward. So you've made the decision of, you know, fast, you know, deep cuts. You've made sure that everything's going to be picked up and the things that need to be picked up are going to be picked up. And now you've reset the expectations. Why are we going to win now? Right. We just laid off all these people. This company, it's usually the sign of a company in distress. Why is now the time for us to believe? So you better have a really thoughtful mission, an incredibly articulate strategy, and a really, really well thought out plan on how you're going to get there. And the new KPIs, you need to be oversharing, right? I, I call it the three C's. I call it culture, communication, and customers. You better be oversharing kind of what matters going forward. Got it. And you had that all prepared in a PowerPoint, in spreadsheets, on the plane as you were flying down to say, this is, this is the riff. I hate it. I'm throwing up on the plane. But now that now that we're down to 100, 100 get in a room, let me explain what's going on. 100%. Yep. And how long did that take? Was that a two-day period? Was that a three-day period? I flew to LA, I think, on a Monday morning. I flew back Tuesday night. And by Wednesday, I was back in the other office, uh, making sure everyone felt onboarded and, and successful and that we were here together and we were going to do this. Got it. And how would you describe the culture now? I think it's move fast. I think people. I think people actually now get restless when they're you know sitting for too long. They're static. People need to be moving and, and shipping and releasing and learning. Um, still very data focused. Huge reliance on data. I actually have more people learning SQL than ever before. I mean, we used to have a huge team of analysts. Now we people PMs are pulling their own data. Engineers are pulling their own data. Um, scrappy. I think like they're they're questioning their own assumptions. They're not looking for guidance. They're they're making their own decisions. And still, I think customer centric. We have we have people you know, all over the organization, calling customers when they need help, responding on social media, taking those calls. Uh, it's just a huge sense of ownership. I think people feel really deeply committed to the new kind of go forward wag. And how do you create an environment where they feel safe questioning their own assumptions rather than showing you that they know all the answers or, or, or that they're right all the time? Well, it starts with you, the leadership team. I, I, I'm op- I openly admit when I don't get it right. And I do it relatively frequently. I say, I thought it was going to be X and it was Y and here's what we did to change. I also think we, we celebrate the failures. Obviously, you don't want to fail, but we, we celebrate it. We go like, look, this was this is a thing we did. Probably shouldn't have done it, but we're going to learn from it. And three is, I think, making sure the people around you that everyone else looks to are not just saying yes. Not going, yes, that's great. Yes, that's awesome. They're, they're questioning just as much as you're questioning. And I think it then bleeds down, right? It's a delicate balance to have a, a questioning and a skeptical uh, culture and the communication style, but also have enthusiasm and energy, right? It's like what Churchill say, you know, success is going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Yeah, it's on me every day to wake up and have energy and to be excited about being here. And to be clear, I am very excited about being here. I wouldn't have taken the job if I wasn't still passionate about the business and what we're doing. And I think you have to have that same level of passion. You can't go through a riff and then show up at 1030 the next day on a call, bummed out, depressed, wearing a hoodie. Like it's on you to rekindle the energy. Like we did it. We're moving forward. Time to go. Right. And talk to me about some hard conversations. Like um, how do you have hard conversations? I I feel like this is something that that you can learn. You know, it's not just a matter of um, gritting it out, but it's rather something that you can realize you're going into what could be a hard conversation and you have techniques and approaches for both yourself and the person you're talking to about how to not make them hard. How, how do you approach hard conversations? Hard conversations, I feel really bad when people don't know they're coming. And so I, I really try to set the tone ahead of time. Like when someone isn't figuring it out, and that's usually the hard conversation, right? Hey, you're not, we're not making progress here. Like we said we would do X and you told me you would do Y. We, it doesn't seem to be going forward. I don't want my conversation to be the first time they hear that. Like they should know along the way that we're not moving forward. We're not, we're not figuring it out. And that happens pretty quickly, right? Like when we, um, 
when we figure out that the job someone has isn't the right job for them, which is the right, it's the right way to put it. They're probably a great person. We only hire, we only want to hire phenomenal people who are excited. When we realize that the job's not, a, well, not the right fit for them anymore, they know. Like when we, when we sit down, they're not like, oh my gosh, I wish you told me, you know, a month ago. But like, yeah, I, I totally get it. I, I'm not, I'm not figuring this out. And I think if you take another step back, I really try to avoid hiring people who I think I have to tell how to do their job, right? Like, that's just like, we, we should hire smart people to go figure smart, hard problems out. Like, that's it. That's it. So I, I do think hard conversations are learned. And there's a lot of language you shouldn't use. Things like, you, you know, I, I, you're doing this, you're making it happen. It's kind of like, arguing with a spouse. Like you really, you want to come across it as really non-emotional, really thoughtful. Hey, we, you know, we said this would happen. What happened? We're, we're, you told me this, why is this no longer happening? And I think a really, a, the other thing I really like is a clear cut agenda at a time. Hey, I'm going to come to you and we're going to talk for 30 minutes. And here's exactly what I want to talk about. No surprises. I don't want this mean to be, oh my gosh, well, I had no idea, Garrett. It's, hey, you know, we need to talk about this thing that's supposed to be happening and it's not. How do you have hard conversations up? Because you talk about hard conversations down where an employee isn't doing it. But how do you have hard conversations up? Part of this is where I actually think um, founders, especially first-time founders, need to have a little bit of ego. You have these VCs most of the time, right? We're talking about venture capital, VC-backed startups and companies who are on probably six, seven, eight boards. Um, they are, this is what they do for a living. They show up at board meetings, they source companies, they deal with founders. Uh, they have probably really strong opinions, but they're going to delay on telling you them if they're smart. And, um, they're going to want to hear what your opinion is first. And then they're going to provide some sort of feedback. And you probably feel like you have to listen. Well, I can tell founders a couple things. One is there's no way the VC knows more about your business than you do. There's almost no way. Like you are the founder of the company. To be clear, you should still own a lot of the company. It is your company. Um, like you need to be making you need to be making the decision. So if you disagree with the VC, if you have if you have a different perspective, you need to call that out. I uh, I have a general rule with my board where I give them bad news over the phone beforehand, and I share all good news in, it, together. So I don't surprise anybody, right? When I show up at a board meeting, and I have monthly board meetings, I love high frequency board meetings, especially during this crazy time. Uh, they're all on Zoom. I, you know, I call I call everyone ahead of time and say, hey, I, I, we have board meeting Wednesday. I want to talk to all of you by Monday. And I want to tell you some things that we need to get through one-on-one. They all get to form their opinions. Then when we get together in person, they're not you know, playing the energy off each other. They've already had time to sit, digest, come to the table, and provide thoughtful feedback. Um, but again, I think it's helpful to have ego here. Too many first-time founders think the VCs are like these gods, right? Like they, they make all the decisions. I need them. They give me all the money. Like it's your company. Like you need to you know, give, tell them honestly and earnestly what's going on. Ask for feedback when you want it. I also think it's really important to just be honest. Be like really, really honest. Like don't hide it. I, I have too many bad experiences, not mine, but friends who waited six months until they told anybody that they only had six months of runway. Um, like there's just, it, people wait too long. It, it's good to do it early and be open and honest. What else can you tell people how to get that confidence? Because it's confidence in both ways, right? You need to tell your board and your VCs how it's going to be because you know it. But you have to also be confident to be open enough to hear the right advice when it comes along. Advice is a, is a funny word. So I think... Every single board meeting I've been in, in my life, there's been advice. And I always listen. And I always, always write down that advice. And I sit on it. And I think about it. But honestly, I probably take 10% of the advice I receive. Maybe 20%. Depends on the person. Because that's what it is. It's advice. It's, a, it's, an, it's an open opinion. What I try to do is I try to get as much advice from as many smart people as I can. And then I reach my own consensus. I think one of the founder failures is li- only listening to one person. Garrett told me this. I'm sure that's right. Well, if I talk to five more people... Do they feel the same way? Maybe, maybe not. So I think I think it's better to have multiple thoughtful opinions than just one. I also think it's really important that there's a difference between advice and telling you what to do. There are some things the board might tell you you need to do, right? Hey, I, 
we got to update the cap table. It's it's been too long. We just need to we need to clean that. That's not advice. Like they're clearly you have a fiduciary responsibility to clean up the cap table, get something done. Now, you know, if they're telling you that you might want to reconsider, you know, your CX vendor tool because they have a, a portfolio company that happens to do it. I mean, that's that's a little different, right? So I think I try to balance. I do try. To, I take all of it. I listen. I write it down. But I try to balance all of it with other discussions. This might be a point to to talk about um, the the venture debt you got at Finrise and the impact that that had on you. I mean, consumer lending, right? So for those who don't know, so I started Finrise with two incredible co-founders who I've known for a very long time, and um, our first brand was called Vetery, and it was veterinarian point of sale financing. So there's this huge incumbent called Care Credit. Process billions of high interest rate loans every year in in de- in offices, dental, veterinary, etc. And we we thought we're gonna we're gonna break these guys. We're gonna go in. We're gonna lend them better terms. We're gonna better underwrite. All these people are getting ripped off. And what we learned was that consumer lending is really hard. You not only do you have to have a proprietary consumer acquisition channel, so you have to get really efficient, low cost you know customers. You also have to have a proprietary capital channel because you're not selling a a, a service. You're selling a dollar. And so you have to figure out how to sell these dollars for you know more expensive than you're getting them. And I can tell you, venture debt did not work for that business. Venture debt is expensive. It's dilutive. It calls pretty quickly. It, you don't have a lot of time to revolve it. And so fundamentally, like venture debt kind of killed us. We had, we had, we'd raised, I think almost $6 million, deployed a lot of that in uh, consumer loans that were getting repaid, but we just couldn't cycle through it fast enough. We, and we, did, we couldn't raise more on good terms. So we were actually going to become the one thing we hated, which was a high interest rate lender. Uh, and so we just decided that was the best path forward was to sell the company. And that venture debt really accelerated the demise of the company. I mean, you don't have time, right? Like venture debt is like a ticking time bomb. So you sign up for a year, you sign up for two years, and then that you know you're you're paying it back. And if you if you haven't cycled that capital quickly enough, it, it just wrecks you. I think there are certain businesses that could raise. I don't know if they would raise venture debt. You might just consider raising like debt that has. I don't know, like Airbnb's done a great job at this, but you, there are, there is times to raise debt. Dropbox being the most notable. I think Dropbox raised a seed and an A from Sequoia and then two $400 million debt facilities. The only reason I think they could do that is because they cycled so quickly on the ROI on customers that they were able to like deploy and return the capital. And it just became much more efficient to do that than to raise equity. But if you don't have that, like do not raise debt. Right. And it seems to me I bring it up because... You said there's a difference between advice and then the board just telling you what to do. And this this is kind of an in-between example where a board could say, we should not take on venture debt. You know, we've only raised, you know, three and a half million of, of equity. You know, we, we don't really have that repeatable uh, model. We will not take on venture debt. And that would be a pattern recognition that a VC might have that would be valuable to listen to. Whereas, you know, you might not know as much about it as a first time founder or something. Yeah. Look, I, I think VCs, the three things I lean I lean on VCs for, particularly my board, is understanding sectors and spaces. Well, clearly they should be excellent at that, right? They should have broad knowledge and specific sectors and spaces, preferably ones that are relevant to you. Two is um, fi- like finances. Like they understand P&Ls and spreadsheets and cohort tables and you know how to calculate LTV like they they intimately understand that that's I really wish more founders relied on their seed investors for that like hey is this calcul- am I calculating LTV right is this a marketing expense or not like that that they really get that we don't need that anymore but it's still fun to kind of bounce ideas off each other and the, and the third thing is actually like financing like particularly the next round of financing hey what's what are you guys seeing okay if look if we're thinking about raising 100 million what are you guys seeing in, in, in comparable comps what are public markets telling us like they should have those things priced out for you. You shouldn't have to do that. Those are like three things where I kind of always listen. I'm like, okay, cool. They have comparable marketplace comps. We're seeing 6X net. The company's growing 30% year on year with some profitability. God, super helpful baseline. Thank you. You know, those are things that they're experts in. 
You've got uh, you've got a hundred people now. Are you looking forward to raising more capital? Or do you think you're going to go the distance? Uh, I, I think we'd be opportunistic. Uh, I think the market's going to be really interesting in six or eighteen months. Look, I think my gut says, and you might strongly disagree with this, that seventy to seventy-five percent of companies are bad to okay, meaning they don't have product market fit. Customers are drying up. They are oh, they're overspending. Too many employees. Too big of an office space. Just not. There's a lot of signals, that, but they're backed. They still have raised anywhere between 100k to 10 million dollars. Those companies need to fundamentally pivot quickly, and I think very few of them will because they don't have that. They don't have that reflexology. They're not ready. I think 20% of companies at best are good companies, right? Good co- companies, possibly on their path to being great companies, also maybe going to be okay companies. Those are companies that have some sort of product market fit, some repeatable acquisition engine, Cactel TV that makes sense, some sort of path maybe to profitability, hopefully if they make the right decisions. Um, hopefully it's not removing marketing expenses or you know stock-based compensation or anything crazy. Um, and then you have 5% of companies that are great. Like Stripe is a great company. Like Everyone wants to own a piece of Stripe. I think great companies will continue to be able to raise large pools of capital albeit slightly decompressed valuations because of public market comps. I think good companies will um, either figure it out or they'll get super diluted. And I think what I mean by figure it out is I mean, I think that they're all, all of their businesses mostly have been compressed by 20, 30, 40% through COVID. And they'll either say, okay, we need to extend, expand our runway by six months or 12 months, or we don't because we think we can raise another 50 or 250. I think all the good to bad will be and so I think for, for good to great companies, you're going to have an, an environment that has a lot of capital ready to be deployed on fair terms. It's interesting. You know, this is the, the other side of the sword for Silicon Valley, because when you talk to people who don't live here, who move here, they often say, the biggest thing I learned in Silicon Valley was how to think big. And where I come from, people just don't think this big. And with the bigger thoughts, you have bigger ideas about how to grow faster and how to make your product better. And that positive feedback between thinking big and getting the fundamentals right at scale is a positive feedback loop. But it feels to me like the last 13 years, we've gotten away from that toward just sort of the saccharine or the sugar of growing fast, which is I want my metrics to go up, but I'm not going to pay attention to the fundamentals of the business because we need to think big. And if we don't think big, then we can't raise more money. We can't attract the top people. And the top people are still just going to go to Facebook or Google or whatever. Um, And so I think I think that what we're finding now is to be a sort of deadly mindset that needs to shift is one that it actually took some time to train people in that would actually produce some of these larger outcomes that get everyone all excited in Silicon Valley and around the world about, you know, the, the, the incredible garage, the creative kooky garage of, of Silicon Valley where these amazing things come out of. Yeah, they're amazing because they're at scale, but they're few and far between. And, and, and most of them, companies like LinkedIn and others had real fundamentals built into them all the way along. And, and we've just gotten away from that. We, we've we've separated the the juice of the fast growth from the fundamentals that actually get you there on a sustainable basis. I I, I totally agree. It, these things take time. Building endurance, enduring business takes a lot of time. It does, and it takes a lot of attention to the details, like being on the customer calls and looking really at the marketing spend. You have to do everything. You have to do literally everything. I, I think it's a really hard job. It became glorious. Being a founder, being a CEO became this like glorious, amazing thing everyone wanted to do. Then you realize how exhausting and difficult and time consuming and stressful and anxiety inducing it is. And you're like, well, I don't know if I really want to do this anymore. And I think there's gonna be a whole lot of people who really don't want to do it anymore and go back to Facebook and Google. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, when we started to get the blogosphere in 2004 and everyone could read about being a founder and everyone could read about what venture capitalists, all this was opaque until 2004. There's no way to learn about it. About it. There weren't really any books. There wasn't any movies. There wasn't Silicon Valley on the TV. 
there was nothing. And, and now it's become this lifestyle that people think they're choosing. It's like a package, but it's very hard to describe the suffering that goes on with it. I mean, look at, look at Ben at Pinterest. Like that guy suffered for years, like endured, like suffered. Jeff at Twilio, I'm sure, I think he had a, a really interesting starting story. Like all like these really amazing businesses that we all applaud now. Like it took so much time and they went through 2008. Like they really struggled and uh, they made it and they're doing it. And like what everyone claps their hands now. And given it's so hard, but given that in most really interesting markets, you do need venture capital in order to compete these days. Cause if you don't take it, somebody else will. Uh, what do you look for in a venture capitalist? Because you're going to be with them for seven to 10 years, right? It's a hard journey. You're getting married. A lot of suffering. You're going to have all the badges on your chest from the firings and the sufferings and the lawsuits and whatever. So you're, you're on a team with someone for seven to 10 years. How do you choose that person? So personally, and this is in no way reflective of the WAG board, who again, I actually really do admire and have a great relationship with. I First thing I do is I look at, did this person operate? I think being an operator is just a whole different mind frame. And there's a lot of VCs who have come up being VCs, which is fine. Uh, I'm sure they're great. But one of the things that's really important to me, especially like early on when you're starting a company, it was for me at Finrise, is has this person operated? Because they've had to make some really difficult decisions. They've, they've been in it. They've been in the trenches, right? Two is um, how long have they been doing this? I actually think it's really important. And they don't mean not necessarily being a VC, but just investing and advising and working with companies. Uh, because at the same time, they're going to have seen a lot, right? Like the bigger their portfolio, the more people they've worked with, the kind of more eyes they have, the better their network. Like there's all these benefits to that, just the time in the role. And the third thing is their ability to be authentic. I far too many coffees where I didn't get anything out of it. Like I almost didn't remember the person's name. And to me, like, I love when a VC shows up and they've been really thoughtful about the email. They say, okay, cool. I got it. Thanks for the intro. Can you, you know, don't send me X. Like if you just give them a blurb, they do their own research. They go to the website, they check things out. They have an opinion. They come with thoughtful questions. Hey, I, there's this competitor. Hey, there's this thing. Hey, have you thought about this? It's not just like this learning experience for them. They're actually like trying to get to know you. And I think that's a huge differentiator. There's too many VCs who look at this like a sales pipeline. Um, and they're just, just trying to suck everything out of you like vampires. And I think that's just like a really awkward experience. I'm very proud of uh, what you've done with WAG, man. It's a testimony to the board that they noticed uh, who you are and what you can bring. And also, I'm very proud of how you executed the whole situation and uh, brought WAG back to a place where it can be a great company and hopefully can have 500 people again someday. All right, James. Thank you. You bet.